This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon and welcome to another Mike Missanelli Podcast brought to us by Bet Rivers and Rush Street Interactive. This is podcast number 26, Wednesday, November 23rd. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. We're doing this pre-Thanksgiving show, but uh, it's a great holiday Thanksgiving. You get to be with your family, you get to watch some football, you get some good food. Uh, So the show today uh, will be about uh, what we saw last night at the Wells Fargo Center, among other things. We'll preview the Eagles uh, a, a little bit later, give you our picks of the week, three questions for Mike, all that good stuff. And Tim uh, Bella, Timothy Bella for the Washington Post, who just uh, wrote a, a tremendous autobiography of Charles Barkley. It's, it's out now, so uh, just in time for the holidays. He's going to join us uh, in a bit to talk about that book and talk about Charles but let's start it out with uh, last night. Of course, the, the big news in Philadelphia, the return of Ben Simmons. And it's a shame that we didn't get the full Monty because uh, Ben coming back would have been a lot more entertaining. Maybe. I don't know because they won the game. But uh, no Joel Embiid, no Maxi, no Harden. Uh, and last night, uh, the whole world thought the Nets would come in here and run the Sixers off the floor. Uh, did not work. So, um so last night, Ben's new team, and, and by the way, Ben, supposedly finally healthy and back to his dynamic self, at least if you listen to the broadcast, the national broadcast on TNT, the, the slobbering commentary in the TNT booth um, by uh, Stan Van Gundy and, and Candace Parker uh, about how great he was, and that still wound up losing to a skeleton Sixers team. Now, let, let's look at, at the game, because early on, I got to be honest, I was impressed. Early on, Ben Simmons was flying all over the place. The Nets looked energized. He got a lot of assists early. He was dominant early in the game. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at him, I'm going, now, hey, would you look at this creep? All of a sudden, he's Mr. Confidence. Uh, so long as, uh, as there's no Embiid in the middle, so long as there's no Harden and Maxi that he would have to actually guard. So, yeah, it was easy for him to, to show this, uh, this Ben who actually knew how to play. 
so no, um, Stan and Candace, uh, I didn't think Ben was back because you got to watch the whole game. Uh, and there were mitigating circumstances last night before you go and tell a national audience how, how wonderful he is and how, how back he is. You, you should, probably should mention the mitigating circumstances. They played a shell of a team that, that kind of helped that along, in, at least in the first part of the game. Now, I'm going to give you full disclosure here. Uh, I'm not going to disguise the fact that I love Ben Simmons. Uh, I think he's by far the biggest enemy villain in Philly sports history for what he did to this team and the city. Um, he, 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 this is a man whose selfishness and utter lack of self-evaluation um, just kind of destroyed the promise and growth of an entire franchise. And we're going to get into this deeply in the next couple of segments. Uh, so what happened last night? Well, listen, it, it, it's almost laughable that the Sixers beat the Nets. And, and yeah, the, the Sixers have beat them 115 to 106 on, on a Tuesday night with the likes of Shake Milton and George Niang and Paul Reed and DeAnthony Melton uh, and Tobias Harris, who played well. But a disgraceful loss for this, uh, this fraud uh, Nets team. And, and it was so predictable for Simmons, right? For, for all his strong play in the first quarter, uh, and he finished with nine points in the first half and a bunch of assists. He finished his, the game with only 11 points, scored two points in the second half. In the third quarter, actually, he scored a basket. Zero points, zero assists, and zero rebounds in the fourth quarter last night for Ben Simmons. And, and he also gave the gift of Chick-fil-A nuggets because uh, after he made two free throws early in the game and uh, he kind of like threw his hands out to the crowd like, how do you like me now? Well, later on, he would miss to to give the crowd the free Chick-fil-A nuggets. So he left a little uh, parting gift uh, for the people. Um, first of all, I, got, I also got to make a full disclosure. I'm looking at the game. Uh, I'm watching TNT. I'm watching Charles and Kenny and Shaq and uh, Ernie. And uh, I'm looking at the game like they're looking at it. There's no way possible for this Sixers team to win that game. They, they, they don't have any offense uh, without those three guys. Where are they going to get their offense? Well, I was uh, uh, badly mistaken. And in fact, I bet I bet the money line on the Nets last night. Now, I know people think that's a violation, but I'm going, hey, listen, when it comes to money, I can't lose on the money line. Forget the point spread. It was seven and a half. I thought that was low. But so I say, there's no way the Nets can lose this game. I had to wind up buying out of that bet on the Bet Rivers app, which is great. They let you buy it out, and I bought it out for like $23 once I saw where that game was going, and the Nets weren't going to win the game. Uh, they all, the Sixers were up, so they reduced the live betting on Bet Rivers app is fantastic because you can, you know, live time, the, the line changes. So when the Sixers were ahead, the line went down to Nets minus two. I thought that was going to be a good bet. I grabbed that. I said, well, you know, Nets will come back here. Minus two. They'll win the game by three, at least. Well, I had to try to bail out of that bet. They wouldn't let me. So I lost the money on that bet. But anyway, let's talk about why Ben Simmons is the biggest villain by far. It was like the other day. We listened to the podcast the other day. We were talking about TV shows. And I said, you know, The Wire is by far number one. And you have to go way down to get to number two with The Sopranos. Well, this is the same thing with, with him as the villain. There's nobody even close to this guy as a villain in Philadelphia sports. Um, 
and, and when we're gonna like look back, because a lot I think a lot of people forget the details of why he is the biggest villain, and I'll rehash that in a second. But I I just uh, compiled a little list, and uh, producer Darren, the voice in the wilderness, who's listening to this. Uh, maybe you can add uh, a little into this. But I tried to get a top five of Philadelphia villains who actually played for a Philadelphia team and then just wore out their welcome to the point where they were gone. And, and they were gone with us hating them. So Ben Simmons, number one. Carson Wentz, number two. As soon as they draft Jalen Hurts, he falls apart and cries. Uh, number three, well, J.D. Drew. Wanted nothing to do with Philadelphia. Go back in the day, and that was fueled by his agent, Scott Boris, but the kid didn't want to play here, right? Total villain. Scott Rowland. Uh, here's a guy who came in uh, as a naive, friendly kid from Indiana. By the time at the end of his career here, he was a nasty cur of a human being to the point where he couldn't wait to get out of here, refused to play on Scott Rowland Day on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, of all time, if the guy doesn't have you know, another, Terry Francona was the manager at the time, right? He somehow decided he needed a rest. Now, if you're Scott Rowland, your manager tells you rest, you go, no, I can't rest today. It's Scott Rowland Day. I got to play today. You want to rest me, rest me next week. The guy took the day off on Scott Rowland Day. And then when he left, he got to the Cardinals and he said, oh, my God, it's like going to baseball heaven. Well, F you. And, and this guy's going to get in the Hall of Fame. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurl if he gets into the Hall of Fame. All right, number five. That's a tough one. I got, four, I got four candidates for number five, Darren. Billy Wagner. Billy Wagner. Remember Billy Wagner by, by the – Buddy, that's the name I had in my head, Billy Wagner. All right, so Billy Wagner, by the end of his career, said, uh, it's really hard. My teammates don't like me, and they don't want me to succeed. And, blah, blah, blah. and then when he got uh, signed as a free agent at the Mets, he kicked the Phillies organization in the ass on his way out the door. Uh, and we love this guy. When he first came here throwing 100 miles an hour, we looked at the scoreboard. Oh, he got to 100. We love the guy. We're at his welcome, became a villain. Here's another obscure one. Rod Barajas. Rod Barajas. Catcher, they acquired, right? They, to solidify their catching situation, Rod Barajas is a free agent. They paid him a lot of money, too. This guy comes here, hit about a buck 90, and then it was one memorable play. I don't know if you remember this play. It was uh, Hanley Ramirez scoring from second base on a hit. They throw him out by like 10 feet. Barajas, instead of blocking the plate, stands up and tries to sweep tag the guy. He slides under him. Ten feet. He had him by ten feet. Brahas, villain. Adam Eaton. How about the nerve on this guy? How about the Coyunes on Adam Eaton? They signed him as a free agent. His ERA was about seven for two years. He has the balls to show up at the ring ceremony in 2008 after they had released him before the World Series. This guy comes back. They're giving the, they're giving the team the rings. He shows up. The Coyotes are that guy. And finally, I uh, Chuck Barkley. I mean, uh, we're going to talk to to Tim Bella, who wrote the autobiography soon. Was Charles a villain? He talked his way out of town. He did talk his way out of town. I think he's more than endeared himself since. I know, I know. I, I just said that because I didn't want to even get away. <laughs> but but he did talk, because you know, he always downplays that. He did talk his way out of town and rip, rip this organization a whole bit. So he's a semi-villain who made up for it later in life. Uh, to me, it's no question it's Wagner. I hate Billy Wagner. Hate him. 
Yeah, Billy Wagner probably solidifies the fifth spot. So if you take an inventory, and you can send me your own list uh, of villains. They had to have played here, though. I know that Mike, Mike Arvin, everybody thinks he's the greatest villain. Ben Simmons, Carson Wentz, J.D. Drew, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner is my list of five. If you have any other lists, hit me up uh, on Twitter at MikeMiss25 or my email, Mike at MikeMiss.com. All right, let, let's now dig in to the Ben Simmons saga, in case people have forgotten the details about this. Because, frankly, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually involved in this in a little bit of a way. Okay, so let's start it out here. Um, first of all, he goes into the tank into the playoffs. Not only in the last series against the Hawks, but let's look at the Washington Wizards series. If you remember the Washington Wizards series, they employed Hackaben. Scott Brooks went Hackaben on him in that whole series because he was 10 for 28 from the free throw line in that whole series. Uh, the free throw woes continued against Atlanta, where in that series he shot 25 for 73. That's 34%. 34%. You hear my dog bark in the background? Yeah, she's, she's out back selling books. Sheba! She's selling your book out back. <laughs> she, she, she heard thump and bump, whatever, whatever yeah. it was. Anyway, let's continue. He doesn't take a shot in the fourth quarter in five of the seven games. Five of the seven, including the last four in the series. Does not take a shot in the fourth quarter. Um, he got cooked defensively. Mr. Defensive Man, right? He got cooked in game five. I was at the game. I bet the Sixers in that game. They were up in that game 70 to 44. They wound up losing the game because he couldn't defend Trey Young and Lou Williams, who was 100 years old coming off the bench, making jump shots. Two six four, two foot two guards cooked Ben Simmons' ass, Mr. Defense. And then, of course, the coup de gras. He passes up the dunk in game seven. Because he was afraid to go to the foul line. Danilo Gallinari was ready to put an Italian tomahawk chop down on him. He didn't want to go to the line. So he panicked and threw the ball to Matisse Thibel, who gets fouled. Matisse Thibel makes one of two. After the game, the Sixers are eliminated this series. And here is the match that lights the dynamite. Doc Rivers is asked, can Ben Simmons be a point guard for an NBA championship team? Doc says, I don't know the answer to that right now. Boom! There it is out there. It triggers the whole nonsense. And then Embiid after the game. So what was the turning point, Joel? Well, the turning point was when we had the open shot. And we passed it up and we made one free throw and and we missed the other and they came down and scored. In other words, the non-dunk was the turning point of the game, according to Embiid. So what do you do if you're Ben Simmons and you hear something like that? You're probably pissed a little bit that you're – your coach and your teammate put you uh, on the griddle there. But what you also do is look with inside yourself. This is a man who was so oblivious to his failings that he didn't think not taking a shot in four straight fourth quarters wasn't a big deal. He didn't think passing up the dunk wasn't a big deal. The man had absolutely no self-awareness what whatsoever. So what does he do after the Sixers lose the series? People are in mourning in this city. How could they possibly lose to the Atlanta Hawks in that series? People are just beside themselves. What this dude does? He goes to Wimbledon. 
La 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 la. He he gets his new girlfriend, Maya Jama. They're sitting there watching Wimbledon like there's not a care in the world. A couple of days later, Rich Paul comes into town asking the Sixers whether a trade would make sense. The Sixers don't want to trade him. Doc says, well, the team has a plan in place to help Ben improve his shooting. But by then, Ben's saying, no, 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 no. He's hurt like a child. Instead of saying, you know, I, you're right. I got to prove my game. I got to at least take a damn jump shot. I'm in the NBA. There's no player in the history of earth who, who has been in the NBA, hasn't taken a jump shot, who played a perimeter position. I defy somebody. Give me a player who never took a jump shot playing a perimeter position in the NBA. That doesn't exist. There's nobody on earth that's ever been in the NBA who played the perimeter that wouldn't take a shot. But he apparently didn't see that. He also withdraws from the Australian Olympic team. The country that made him a god. He couldn't even give them the satisfaction of playing for them in the Olympics. So the wheels are now in motion. Uh, The brass, Doc, Maury, Elton Brand, they go out and they visit him in L.A. In this $17 million mansion that he built where he's having pool parties. He says, nah, sorry, I'm not coming back. So um, now there's this uh, story that comes out. The teammates want to go out and talk to him. He says, say away, fellas. I don't want to see you. So now the Sixers finally in July, this is about less than a month later, the Sixers say they're open to trading Ben Simmons, but they're asking for the moon. And around the league, people are going, I'm not going to give that much for Ben Simmons. So um, the Sixers then say, okay, if we can't trade him, Let's prepare to move forward with Ben. Not thinking that the worst-case scenario would happen. They're thinking, that okay, time goes by. He'll come back. We'll carry on, whatever. So here it is, September 27th, and we're getting ready for another season. There's a media day at the Sixers practice facility in Camden. I go down there. This is a great moment. He's finally going to talk after all this nonsense. I go there along with, like, 30 other reporters crowded in the hallway. Ben Simmons is going to speak on media day. All of a sudden, word comes down. Um, uh, by the way, uh, the Ben, the media session has been canceled. Uh, really? Why? Because he left the building. He skated out the back door, got his car, and left the building. So no media day for Ben Simmons. And now we know it's a point of no return. Or at least we think. But on September 28th, he does not show up for camp. And Bede says, that's borderline disrespectful. All of a sudden, the Sixers aren't going to pay him. It's October 1st. He is due for an $8.25 million check that the Sixers have to sign. The Sixers put it in escrow. And they say, he's not here. He's not participating. We don't have to pay him this. And every fine that he incurs now for not being here is going to come from this fund that we just put in escrow. Simmons misses the first two preseason games. His agent is told if he doesn't show up, he's not getting paid. In fact, now the fines are $227,613 for each game that he misses. He's not thinking this is going to happen. So on October 11th, he says, all right, I'm going to return. And if I return, they have to pay me. He goes to the training facility October 11th evening. That night, the Sixers are playing a preseason game at the Wells Fargo Center against the Nets. 
He knows nobody's there. He shows up under the cloak of darkness, goes into the facility, and works out to show the Sixers, I'm participating. You got to pay me now. On nine, October 19th, they say, no, we're not paying you, by the way. That's not good enough. So on October 19th, he shows up at practice finally. First day he shows up at practice thinking, okay, he's back. He's now going to get paid. He doesn't participate in the practice. He does a couple things on the side, but they're scrimmaging. Doc sends him into the scrimmage. He says, no, nah, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to play, Doc. So they, they tell him to go home. Doc chases him out of the building. I'm recanting all this because you might have a memory of this. Uh, okay, the season begins without Ben Simmons. And um, on a Wednesday, October 21st, Daryl Morey comes on the Mike Missanelli show on the Fanatic and utters the shot that would be heard around the world. He says, guess what? If it takes us four years to get the best deal, then it's going to take four years because we're not giving the guy away. In other words, we're willing to hold out to the rest of his contract until we get value for the guy so you can sit out there and rot is basically what Morey said. By the way, two days later, the Fanatic informs me that they're not renewing my contract. This is 2021. Now, I'll tell this story a little later. It's part of the whole narrative of why I'm no longer at the Fanatic. After the biggest interview that I've ever had on the air, two days later, they tell me not renewing my contract. However, I digress. Let's get back to the Ben Simmons thing. Um, on the October 22nd, he says, um, I have mental problems. It is a ploy by he and his agent to take advantage of a clause in the CBA that says you still have to pay a guy if he's got a mental health situation. This mental health situation kind of comes out of nowhere, but now he's trying to cover his ass by saying, well, now they'll have to pay me. The Sixers have to pay him. The Sixers start to pay him with the caveat. The caveat is, hey, um, since you're not seeing our mental health guys and you're supposedly seeing NBA Players Association mental health guys, we got to correspond with these people. You got to cooperate. You got to share the info that you're seeing somebody. He decides not to share the info, shedding bad light on the whole situation as to whether he's actually seeing a medical professional. So the Sixers say, guess what? We're not paying you again because we can't verify that this is a mental condition. This is like the soap opera from Beyond Soap Operas, right? On November 11th, Rich Paul rips the sisters, saying that they're actually making his mental troubles worse by playing this game with him. And they're not helping the overall situation. So they have more reason to pay him. They're making him more mental. January rolls around. Still no Ben. Rich Paul comes in to meet with the Sixers. No progress is made in that meeting. In fact, I am told by somebody at the meeting that Rich Paul, who's now dating Adele, spent the first hour of the meeting talking about Adele until Elton Brand says, Rich, what the fuck are we doing here? And then they finally got around to talking about the Ben Simmons situation. But no progress is made on the situation at all. And finally, November 10th rolls around, and he's traded to the Nets for Harden. Now, if you heard that story and don't think this guy is the biggest villain in the history of Philadelphia, then you're not alive. And I have to laugh at when this is all going on, all these national people are saying, well, look at the, how, look how the Sixers treated him. How did they treat him? What, are you kidding me? 
There were two comments after a disappointing uh, NBA playoff series loss to the Atlanta freaking Hawks that he should have taken under advisement and said, you know what, they're kind of right. I'm pissed that they said that, but I got to improve my game. But the man has no self-awareness, and it led to that. Now, did I make the case that he's the biggest villain, Darren? It is incredible to hear you run that timeline back. Absolutely incredible, because I remember it all, but some of it fades I, I, you know, and I hated him as much, almost as much as you. And he is, I always agree, always agreed he's the biggest villain. But even still, to hear you read all of that back in succession, that is an incredible timeline, an incredible lack of self awareness, of self entitlement. You just, it's astonishing. I, it's, I really, I'm beside myself. Okay, so 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 uh, so the people that heard me talk run down the villains, yeah. it's been number one, and you got to go seven stories down to get to number two with Carson Wentz. There's Ben, then there's thirty feet of shit, and then there's number two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. I hope you enjoyed that that Ben caper and why I loathe the man. Listen, I have respect for athletes and, and uh, what and what their accomplishments are. But when, when a guy just wants to take money uh, and not actually work to make his profession better and and use the fans as foils and fools, then I got a problem with it. And that comes from being cynical, covering thirty years worth of sports and seeing these characters. Uh, I've never seen anybody like this guy. I, I he 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 just he, it starts and ends with this guy as far as being a villain, as far as being an enemy of the people. Uh, so there's that. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, it is the Mike Missanelli podcast, and uh, we are uh, really honored to have our next guest on the air as we do our pre-Thanksgiving show. He's got a book out right now; just got released. And it's about a subject we all know and love here in Philadelphia. The book is called Barkley, a biography. And joining us right now is the author of the book, Washington Post reporter Timothy Bella. Uh, Bella, hello, Tim. How are you? What's good, Mike? Awesome being here, man. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us. Uh, and of course, Bella means beautiful in Italian, by the way. So I, I know you know that. Right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm sure this will be a beautiful interview. It's a beautiful thing. Exactly. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Uh, all right. So firstly... Uh, what made you want to write this book? Uh, obviously, he's a compelling subject, and he comes as advertised, and it's a good subject for a book, but what made you want to do it? Honestly, Mike, it started uh, when I was a kid, and I was a short, uh, really fat kid with a speech impediment who just like loved basketball, and I, I was terrible at it. And I'm like, ah, should I keep going? And then I, I would see this undersized, kind of pudgy dude in Philly and Phoenix doing his state. And I'm like, how the hell is he doing that? And like, I saw this guy and he was doing it with such exuberance and, su- and such confidence. And I'm like, man, I just kind of want to be like that in some ways. Obviously I don't want to get into fights or I, I get pulled over like he did, but still like the good parts of Charles Barkley, I just kind of gravitated towards. So it started there. And as I got into journalism, I just kind of had this better understanding of his place in not just basketball, but also pop culture and social issues, which he still talks about a lot today. And 
I'm just like, this guy has lived such a big life. It's a life that can only really happen here in this country from someone who grew up in the projects of Leeds, Alabama with a single mother to rise to become this icon in basketball and broadcasting. And, and considering he's been in our lives now since Auburn for about four decades, I just thought now was the right time for a big comprehensive biography on Chuck. He deserves it. And why not now? Well, it, it is very comprehensive. In fact, you mentioned in the forward that you interviewed uh, 374 people from from all walks of his life, including I found it fascinating in reading a book. You interviewed the cue card guy on Saturday Night Live who had to flash in the cue cards when he made Wally. He's his great. appearances. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's amazing the people that you got in touch with. And I know from having write, written a book, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to, to touch base with all these people, much less get time with them to talk. So I, I, I'm wondering what kind of process that was for you. Honestly, Mike, it was exhausting and really time-consuming because on top of writing the, this book, I am an editor and a staff writer at the Washington Post. And when I took on this book, I was actually working uh, the overnight shift there, which means I was working from 9 p.m. until 7 a.m. Uh, and then going to bed and waking up in the afternoon and interviewing people for this book. I did that for almost two years straight. So, like, it was really, really tiring. And then you throw in the whole pandemic, too, to kind of uh, uh, alter things, obviously, in a terrible way. But it it was really just a hard, long process. One that had me uh, go down to Palm uh, Beach Island, where my family has had a beach house for years to just bang out 14 chapters in a month in August of 2020. So it was really tiring, really exhausting, but it was so worth it just because how engaging of a subject I had on my hands. I did when I went into this, I knew I just did not want to be bored. And uh, Chuck actually did that. Yeah, well, yeah, he's his, his life is not boring, but it is funny the way because you never know when a subject is going to get back to you. And, and I, remember, I remember I was on a train coming back from New York, and I had been after this guy uh, to to write my. I think it was Winston Moss, who was uh, I, my my book was on Penn State. Not that it matters a lot, but it, it was about the nineteen eighty six season. And he, I was on the train, and he called me then. And I, so I was faced like this is the only time I could get him. And I remember having a conversation, interviewing this guy on the train, and it was not a quiet. It was a quiet car, and, and all these people harangued me. So, but you had to really be available when these subjects want to talk about it because it's it's pertinent to to what you're trying to do. So uh, uh, another part of this is that it, Charles did not participate in this. And uh, so I guess this is considered an unauthorized biography. In fact, I texted him to see if he had any questions he would like to ask you. Uh, oh. And he said he, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, participate in the book. Now, uh, I know you probably tried to get him to participate. What was your feeling about him not participating? I did, Mike. And uh, I gave him and his agent, Mark, an 81-page 
outline of what the exact book was going to actually be chapter by chapter. It even gave him a sample chapter before I interviewed a single person for the actual book itself, because I just really want to be as transparent as possible about this book. Most of it is a celebratory book, but obviously by anyone's life, there are some uh, uh, down parts to it. And I want to be as comprehensive and as honest as possible. So I wrote him a letter to his home in Scottsdale. I uh, spoke to his agent. Uh, I spoke to his wife, Mo. So like, I, I really wanted them to understand that I wanted to be as open and honest about this process as possible because that's what someone rightfully deserves. And unfortunately, he did not participate. That's okay. He doesn't know me, and I totally understand that. But I told Mark, his agent, ahead of time, like, this is going to be a really good book either way. It's going to be an even better book with Charles, and, and you should know that. So uh, so when he did say no, I, you know, I reached out to hundreds and uh, close to actually a 1,000 people in total. I got almost 400 people to talk, and... As more people would get back to me, they would say, well, if, let me talk to Charles first. So I would hear from just dozens of people who actually got back to me. It's like, hey, I talked to Charles. He's cool with it. And even one person said uh, later on that I had worn Charles down because I appreciated out to so many different people from all of uh, all stages of his life that he just kind of gave up at the end. So, (laughs) so, so while this book is uh, considered unauthorized, um, I know he doesn't like the word uh, controversial. I don't like the word unauthorized. So, but, (laughs) but it it is something that I, that it is the most comprehensive book on Chuck so far. Um, It's coming up on his uh, 60th birthday soon. He's been this icon, and and I just wanted to do my part in in producing a book that, that uh, spans this big, big life. Yeah, and uh, he gave it to the point where his wife talked to you. So I guess that's that's giving up to to Mo's the ultimate. Great. Yeah, no, big Mo fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marie and his wife, of course, who we all know around here. Uh, so let, let me uh, get into it. It is very comprehensive, and, and you spent a lot of time developing uh, his, his attitudes, his racial attitudes, and and the attitudes that are around them. And I I found it really interesting that early on. He didn't seem to be affected by racial attitudes, and I think it was influenced by his mother, as you point out, who wanted to get along with everybody because she had a business and she had to, uh, a cleaning business, and, and she had to deal with a lot of white people. And I think she ingrained it in him that uh, you get get along with all walks of life. So he, he it was unique because a, a lot of people who do that then go back and later in life when they get to be bigger sort of hold that resentment and and regret that they did that they accepted uh, the the uh, uh the, the racial disparities and and then 
because he did at first, and then he got in the nineties. He he got angry a, a, a little bit. So h- how would you uh, categorize his attitudes uh, on on racial matters? Yeah, it's a great question, and I do think it does go back to his mother, who cleaned these homes for these mostly white families in Leeds, uh, uh, some of the more expensive homes in Leeds, and uh, Charles would actually follow her to these jobs and spend time at these homes. And she would just really pound into him. doesn't matter what race you are, how much money you have. You just have to treat people well. And you have to treat them so well, no matter who they are. And that is something he just kind of hung onto that um, in some ways, I think, kind of became a blind spot for uh, some of the more complicated patterns that were happening in Alabama around the time that he was raised there. Obviously, he grew up in the Jim Crow South. He grew up in a place where segregation in schools uh, was it was slowly ending, but there was still a ton of tension there. So when he did come to Philadelphia and when he would date white women in Philadelphia. He would hear things that that really shocked him, just really ugly and gross things uh, directed at him and his women. He would date just based on um, him point to actually date white women. And it really hurt him to a point that that he colored Philadelphia in, in this very broad strokes um, for a short period of time. Obviously, he loves Philly now. It's a very different relationship now. But back then, it was tense. It was a little complicated when he would go out and try to actually have a social life there. And some of that anger was not uh, exclusively for these people. A lot of the anger was held toward his father, Frank, who left him and was pretty much um, an acquaintance in his early life instead of a father or even a friend. And he also told that toward his high school teachers who flunked him and he did not walk with his graduating class and leave. So there, there were several factors that contributed to his anger early on in Philly and I do think that switch got flipped when he accidentally spit on you know, the little girl in New Jersey. But right up until then, he was a he was a pretty angry dude, Mike. Yeah, uh, and and he uh, you, you detail the story where uh, he did get flunked out of that quick, couldn't graduate with his class, and he and he sat up on a hill looking at the graduation ceremony with tears in his eyes, and it really affected him in his life. Um, so. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about what what you just brought up uh, that that situation uh, that you just brought up and uh, the spitting uh, of the girl because you get into a great deal you you interview the girl you you, you interview the the people that were there and, and the father of the girl and uh, and this was uh, uh, and a lot of people just hear the point he spit on a little girl which he really did not do he spit at a guy who was hurling racial insults at him the entire game 
and and he said he didn't have enough fluid or whatever it was, and it it went in a different trajectory. And, and yeah, it, I mean, there, there's so many amazing stories of that. But you're right. How do you, uh, this profoundly affected him? He and you quote somebody in it saying that I, I've ne- I've never seen uh, anything uh, uh, a guy so remorseful uh, that 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 happened that he was so uh, uh, really destroyed by it for a while. Yeah, uh, guys like Percy Hawkins teammate back then and uh Johnny Dawkins uh uh G-Man Mike Jaminski they all saw how that really affected him how that hit him just totally differently than anything else in his life to that point because obviously he you know he always had a bunch of technical fouls got into fights arrests uh on and on but this incident in Jersey that night, um, in which he spit on or accidentally spit on her, um, he really thought he was not going to bounce back from that moment. Um, like you said, there was a heckler who who was um, spewing out the N-word at him, just totally disgusting behavior. And Charles had... He just snapped and he he did something that he immediately regretted because once he saw who he had hit, he realized that his NBA life could be done. He, he could be just totally blackballed. And I, to let's kind of give you an idea of that time period. It was around the time of HIV and AIDS and Patrick Johnson just making huge headlines and. Lauren's mother thought initially she was concerned that her daughter uh, might have HIV just based on getting spit on by Charles. So it really kind of speak to that moment in time and how tense things were around that topic. But in terms of Charles, uh, he really had to look himself in a mirror after that incident and tell himself like this has to stop all of this is because of the anger i held toward my father toward my teachers and this is just no good way to live life and i think after that we started to see a more playful side that we would see um, sometimes, uh, but he really did, did just kind of embrace happiness and was able to let go of the heavier stuff after that one bad night in Jersey. We're talking to Tim Bella, who is the author of Barkley, an autobiography. It's uh, more than 500 pages, and it's really a great read, and uh, all kinds of stories uh, are involved because that's, here's the bottom line. And and one of the reasons I guess you talked to me uh, about the book to hear my stories about him is because we had a regular uh, co-hosting. Uh, he would come on my show in Philadelphia uh, every year. He promised me he would do it every year. And, and when he promises something, he does it. It's amazing. And he would just do a show for four hours and couldn't, couldn't wait to do the next show. In fact, got all kinds of feedback in Philadelphia. I can't wait to hear you on the Mikey Miss show. Uh, and he was one of the most unique people I've ever been around. Uh, for so many different reasons, but he his his storytelling 
was just uh, off the charts entertaining. And, and the way he delivered a story. And these are all true stories. And um, so I'm, I'm curious to know, of all the, the hundreds of stories you heard about him, what was your favorite story to write about? I, there are so many. And I got to tell you, just having family in the uh, Philadelphia area, they would always send me the link to your interviews with Charles each year just because it was so entertaining. And I'm so happy you were able to actually speak with me for this might just because, uh, yeah. But it, anyway, if the, the point of the most interesting and funniest stories, I always go back to um, towards the end of his tenure in Philadelphia and uh, uh, specifically to the one cold night in Milwaukee, he he goes out with a couple of friends from the Milwaukee Bucks after a game, has a few drinks, um, and he's hanging out, and this group of bodybuilders um, approaches him. And I was able to actually interview one of these bodybuilders who was there, and uh, they approached Charles and his friend outside of this bar, Rosie's in Milwaukee. It's freezing. It's 10 degrees out. And one of them yells to Charles, Hey, Charles Barkley, I hear you are the baddest mf in all of the NBA. Show me what you, you got. And Charles understanding that he was going to get his butt kicked um, in that moment, decided to just go totally crazy. And his version of totally crazy was stripping down to his boxers and his socks, taking off all of his clothes and just going full Danielson on them, (laughs) wanting to uh, fight these huge bodybuilder dudes. And and, uh, one bodybuilder I interviewed Bob um, did not drink that night. He said, we were going to, going to get our butts kicked by Charles because he was so crazy. I, I was so afraid what he was actually going to do. And amid this confusion, Chuck was able to uh, punch the main uh, bodybuilder in his nose and to actually break his nose and, and stood over him like he was Muhammad Ali saying, there's more of that. Um, and, and it, it, you know, he gets arrested. Um, and there, there is a trial in Milwaukee later on and the charges do get dismissed, but what's interesting about that period and it kind of shines light on some of the stress story at the end of his tenure in Philly was that the same day the charges got dropped. It was announced he got traded uh, to the Phoenix Suns. So um, I, I'll please go back to that story to this kind of um, a, a funny and weird way to end his time in Philly. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. That was his t- the last the last straw was his ticket out of there. He told that story on the air, uh, and I remember him describing the story. It was such a gold story. Uh, and he said, like, it, it amazed me that he was so calculated to think that 
okay, uh, these guys are probably going to kick my ass, so I got to act the craziest that I possibly can. And he thought of that in a split second. And the way to do that was to strip down in 10-degree weather. I mean, that's just like, his, it's like unbelievable. It's brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this, his bodybuilder, too, is like, I am, I am not going to lie in court. I'm going to say exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. He stripped out. He punched my friend. My friend uh, started whole thing outside. Like, I'm not going to lie in court because I saw how crazy Charles Barkley got that night. <laughs> You know, that was the that was the science of the whole thing. He said, "Yeah, to beat three guys, I got to show that I'm crazier than them, and they don't want to mess with me." Uh, my favorite story, if I can interject, and uh, I don't know if you put sure, it in the book, yes. but it, uh, the story that uh, is the best for me that he t- tells on the air is the story about Charles Shackelford, who you put in the book that you know uh, you detail that whole process with the Sixers and how it evolved and how they got worse as, as the years went on after Julius Irving left. Uh, but they were on a losing streak. And Harold Katz, who you talked to in this book, and you, you portrayed mm-hmm. it for the former Sixers owner of that team, uh, they were in a losing streak. And he called a meeting in, in the locker room after practice, and he had them all sit around in a semicircle. And he said, I want you, each one of you guys to tell me what's, what you think's wrong with this team and why we're losing. A couple guys stand up and uh, and you know say the stock answers. We're not playing enough defense. We're not rebounding enough. And he had Charles Shackford and Armand Gilliam on the team who hated it. And he hated it because he, he didn't think they cared about the game at all. Uh, and um, Howard Katz goes, all right, Charles, you're next. He goes, you really want me to tell you? He goes, yeah, I want you to tell Charles. I want you to be as honest as possible. He goes, okay, I'm going to tell you as honest as possible. We're losing because these two motherfuckers, Shackelford and, and Gilliam, suck. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so he says that they both got up and charged at him. And they were sitting on stools, and he picked up a stool, and he put it up like he was a lion tamer. I mean, you can't make that. way. he's telling this story in live time, it's just, like, so entertaining. It's unbelievable. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, let's, uh, nuts, let's look yeah. at. Uh, I'm sorry uh, to tell that story. I don't want to <laughs> rain on your parade. No, no, no. It's nuts. It, it's it, it's. Uh, yeah, he famous. He said, you know, I pointed Shaq and I got Charles. You got Shackleford. Yeah, he got Shackleford. You know, there's so many interesting little twists in there. I didn't remember the Barkley sneakers phenomenon. You know, everybody thinks, you know, the sneakers when they came out, they, Jordan and Barkley kind of in the contemporaries coming in the same time, and it was always the Air Jordan. But but Barkley actually had the first sneaker, didn't he? Yeah. And, you know, it's impossible to talk about Charles Barkley without talking about Michael Jordan. Obviously, uh, the uh, end of their friendship was, again, highlighted by Charles saying they're both too stubborn to ever get back together. But going back to the shoes, though, um, Nike always wanted to paint Michael Jordan as this graceful figure who uh, was almost above basketball, was so fluid in his motions, was so beautiful to watch. And put put Charles, they just couldn't park at him that way. They wanted to park at him as this enforcer, this guy who was going to kick ass and take names. And, and so they connected him to this Air Force shoe. And for a stretch... 
his shoe to actually outsold Jordan's in a, a way that these Nike executives, including Phil Knight, who I spoke to for this book, did not expect at all. Um, so it really just showed them, showed these Nike folks, and showed corporate America that this guy could sell shoes and other items in a big way. They just had it to be honest in the actual marketing of Charles. He's not a graceful figure. He's not politically correct. He is who he is. He's honest. He can can be a brute, and you just had to embrace it. And once they did, uh, people were all about it and just wanted to choose. Yeah, you know, and as somebody you're reading is through you, 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 you quote somebody, uh, ex NBA player, like the, when they, the first sneak they had growing up was the Barkley. Everyone wanted the Barkley. Uh, and it's funny how that dynamic happened. And now Air Jordan was at the, at the same time. And then, then Barkley's shoe kind of faded away and it became all Air Jordan. Uh, so uh, let, let me uh, uh, ask you about this. And, um, you know, the thing when he came into the studio, the thing that I noticed about him was how genuinely nice a man he was. And, and even being out with, in public with him. And uh, a lot of athletes put on a facade that they are, but in reality, they're not. And uh, it, the shame of it is most of them, most of the athletes come in friendly and leave like monsters. And, and you know, that's influenced by, obviously, the money and the fame. And they kind of leave the regular world and they, they become king of their own domain. And, and the rest of the world becomes just mere subjects to them. But, but Charles was never like that. And say he had his moments, believe me. But in real life, he's a genuinely nice man who believes he's among the people. And I'm curious in your research, how do you think that happened? Honestly, Mike, I think it's something he always wanted to be. And I think he would see guys like his sporting heroes from Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, to his contemporaries like Michael Jordan, and he would see the attention they would get and how they handle it it sometimes. And aside from Ali, he did not want to be like Mike in the sense that he did not want to be just locked away and hotel room with food, just watching TV. He wanted to be out with people. He he is a social creature, and there is no greater social creature in NBA history than Charles Barkley. And it, I I think it's something he really got from his grandmother Johnny May, who who was apparently the uh, spitting image of him he she is how he got the attitude and a personality of just being the life of a party so really let's go back to his grandmother but um when he got to philadelphia to if you recall mike he in his first couple of years he really was a hermit he really did, did kind of stay inside uh he put watch a bunch of soap operas and just kind of keep to himself. And I, I think it just got to a point 
where he just wasn't having fun. And his true self is going out and just being around people and talking with people and having a good time. And I think once he started to actually do that, he enjoyed Philly so much more. And obviously we saw that be fully formed in Phoenix when he went out there because it feels like the actual narrative surrounding Charles just kind of flipped when he had his MVP season and went to the NBA Finals. And it, everyone wanted to actually be around Charles Barkley. They, they did not see him as like a Darth Vader figure. That They saw him as, a, as almost kind of this lovable villain who you were in on a joke with. He's not really just being a mean person. He's just in the heat of that moment. And if you're, if he's on your team, you just want him 110% and you you're so hard for him. So um, it really was a process getting there. But um, when he decided that just life is too short he got the version of Charles Barkley that we know now. Yeah, I, I got to say, he, he has uh, completed one of the great transformations in personality of that, and, and any person, much less an athlete, that, that I've ever seen. I mean, he was a bad boy. He did some bad things. He was a selfish. He was brat. He was a pain in the ass a lot. But now you look at him, and it's funny because you quoted Larry King in the book, and uh, he says, Whenever you say his name, people smiled. What a thing to have. And, and that really says it all. It, you. you He's got this person like anything bad he's ever done is just irrelevant. And and he is this just big teddy bear personality who still says ridiculous things. But but but, but it, nobody ever takes points away from the guy. And I, I just think it, it, it's amazing. And you can see that the, the guy possesses genuine kindness. And I just saw it, you know, when he was in our office, the, the, anybody who wanted to meet him came up and, you know, normally athletes are bothered by that. This guy went out of his way to talk to people. He would seek him out. Who are you? Where do you work? What department do you work? How long have you been here? And we hold an actual conversation with him. It's pretty amazing and uh, uh, just a, a unique character. And I love the guy. And I'm sure at the end of this book, uh, what, what, is your, what is your lasting impression now as you walk away from this book? The book's on the shelves now. Again, it's called Barkley, uh, a biography. What, what did you learn and what do you take away from doing this book, Tim? I learned, Mike, that honestly, his life could have gone in a whole bunch of different directions, uh, some of which would have been uh, really poor, to be honest with you. I, I mean, if you look at the stories surrounding his brother, Daryl, who who had a really hard time just living in his brother's shadow in Leeds, Alabama, his brother, Daryl, uh <laughs> Got involved with substance abuse and drugs. Um, uh, got arrested. Um, later had heart problems. He did a heart transplant. Like his life was really hard, and unfortunately, he ended up dying at a relatively early age. And Charles has often talked about his brother Daryl and how, it, when it comes to addiction and and issues like that we have to treat it very seriously because there was a big problem in 
beats Alabama back then, and Terrell got caught up in that, and, and Charles never did. And I, so for me, I know seeing the story about his brother and seeing uh, some of the other steps along the way, whether it be, you know, the arrests or uh, I'm spitting on Lauren or uh, pulling a guy through a bar window in Orlando or it, any of the statements he's made regarding race or politics or police brutality that would have canceled any other person to see him still standing and not be taken down by any of this is a real credit to him and to the trust and the relationship that we have had with Charles now for decades. And it's an incredible story because um, for any other person, they would just go away. People would not care about them, but um, somewhere along the way, Charles became America's crazy uncle. And if, if they just kind of keep coming back to him and he's Teflon in a lot of ways. I mean, he says a lot of things that really piss people off. He says other things that really just make people laugh. And, but, but people know that he mostly comes from this place of love instead of hate. And that's one thing I just kind of took away that if you or someone like Chuck and you keep saying and doing these outrageous things that the relationship and the trust you have over four decades with an American public who knows you, they kind of understand that this is who you are and we appreciate that. And I, I think that's part of the blessing of Charles Barkley. We just kind of, appreciate who he is even when he's wrong tim listen we uh, we really appreciate you coming on again the uh, book is called barkley uh he's timothy bella who uh, wrote the book uh and uh he of course uh, uh works for the washington post it's a great read uh, especially if you're a sixer fan uh because uh it tells of that whole era uh, of charles and how uh, it deteriorated after Doc left and, you know, Moses' influence and, you know, the, the many ways the Sixers tried to resuscitate it with uh, Hawkins and Dawkins and Thump and Bump and Jaminski, you know, and, and nothing ever worked until it was totally disintegrated and he wound up going to Phoenix. Tim, thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike, and uh, happy holidays, too. It's the Mike Mussinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, uh, a couple of segments ago, I was a little on the edge, a little angry, a little nasty. Ben Simmons has that that influence on me. So I'll calm it down right now. We'll get to a nice part of the podcast, which is is the beauty of Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving is just a fantastic holiday. For my money, it's the best holiday out there. I know a lot of people like Christmas, but Christmas brings a lot of stress. You got to go out, you got to get the presents. You got to make sure everybody's satisfied with the presents. You got to put a little thought into it. It's a stressful time. Thanksgiving, it's nice and easy, except for the people that have to prepare the meal. But it's a beautiful holiday where the family gets together and you have a really nice meal. And let me tell you about that meal. Because for my money, turkey is the most underrated American meal ever. We don't have enough turkey. I would like to have turkey once a week. 
But the turkey's too big. What I usually do is buy a turkey breast if I'm going to have turkey because I like the white meat of turkey. But a nice roasted turkey with some mashed potatoes, with some tweet potatoes, with some veggies, with some uh, cranberry sauce, all, all the trimmings. You, you can't beat it. It's, it's a wonderful time to sit there and eat with family and, uh, and talk to, to people and be nice and uh, football and, and the whole bit. It's, it's a great holiday. Now, if you're Italian on Thanksgiving, normally you got to throw some pasta in there. I know a lot of people, uh, that seems weird to a lot of non, non-Italians who I call medigans, but uh, you got to have the pasta in there. Usually for me, it's a nice lasagna. Even though lasagna is filling, may cut your turkey intake down. Lasagna, pasta, it's got to be a red sauce pasta, I believe, uh, as a pre, uh, preliminary course to, to the turkey. Uh, so I'm good with that. Now, uh, the family situations can, can be either really good or really annoying or somewhere in, in between. Um, I mean, somebody usually gets on somebody's nerves. If you got a bunch of relatives colliding for like the first time and they got beefs together, something like that can happen. Uh, but most of the time, it's nicey nice. And everybody's sitting there, you get the pumpkin pie at the end and the coffee, and you're talking about life the whole bit. So, uh, Darren, you, you come from an Italian family. Uh, uh, I'm curious to know how your Thanksgiving do. Are they, are they mostly good and calm, or, or did, can they get a little irascible? It is well. I spend my Thanksgiving this time, this era of my life, with my wife's family, and it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Always the lasagna, mm-hmm. of course, um, but it's great. It's just smiles and laughs and drinking mm-hmm. wine and watching football. It is the greatest holiday. There is no pressure. There's no gift giving. The only thing you can re- relate to is we do. You know, I have two kids. My cousin's got three kids. My other cousin, her other cousin's got this many kids. All the kids do the Pollyanna. There used to be the, it used to be us, our generation. We're all married now. We all have kids. The kids do the Pollyanna for the Christmas Day gift. No. But it's, it's football and wine and eating and, and third helpings and fourth helpings of potatoes and turkey. It's the greatest yeah, holiday. Yeah, it I'll is. Be- you know, later at night, if you're still hanging out watching football, like at nine o'clock, you, you're hankering for a turkey sandwich. You know, oh, you hit the, the turkey early in the day, you, the turkey sandwich at night, at night as you're watching the final football game. Uh, and speaking of football games, um, Thanksgiving Day football game. So let, let me let me give you our Thanksgiving my Thanksgiving Day picks. Uh, now, normally, uh, I got to say in these Thanksgiving Day games, the underdog makes these games uh, closer than you might think. Well, why is that? Well, I think the underdog team uh, always feels cheated as far as uh, the notoriety they get, and they know on Thanksgiving everybody in the world's watching the game. Thanksgiving, you have nothing better to do. You go to the TV, you watch. So there's a little pride factor in there, and uh, it, it heightens, I think, their their focus and their ability. They really want to play well on Thanksgiving. So the underdog team usually uh, gets close to the favorite team as far as the point spread goes. But I'm not feeling that in, in these matchups. And the, the Lions are telling me to pound the high line favorite. So let's take a shot. Now, um, I'm going to give you my picks of the week in a little bit. They include college. But one of these Thanksgiving Day games is also in my picks of the week. But here are my Thanksgiving Day picks. And, again, download that Bet Rivers app. It's the easiest way to bet. Get that app on your phone, and boom, you click right in. Buffalo at Detroit. Detroit is the traditional Thanksgiving Day team that plays. And normally they play okay. But the Buffalo Bills are a nine-and-a-half-point favorite in this game at Detroit. The Lions have won three in a row. The quarterback's playing very well. Uh, and the Bills are, are struggling a little bit with the quarterback who has a bad wing. And yet they're nine-and-a-half-point favorites? 
Oh, that's a line that tells me they mashed Detroit. Detroit may be riding a little high, smelling themselves a little bit. Buffalo, the road team, minus nine and a half. I got to ride with the Bills in this game. All right, let's go to the next one. Giants at the Cowboys. The Giants are starting to leak. Cowboys with a big effort last week against the Vikings. The Cowboys are nine and a half. Are you kidding me? An NFC East game? And have the Giants fallen this much? Well, the line is telling me that. I got to take the Cowboys minus nine and a half. Both these games look like double-digit wins for the favorite. And finally, nightcap. And this will be in my picks of the week. Patriots at the Vikings. The Vikings minus two and a half. A slim line for the Patriots going to Minnesota. You would think it would be a bounce-back game for the Vikings. No, no, no. That's not what the line, the oddsmaker, thinks. In fact, that line tells me one thing, Darren, and you know what it is. The Patriots outright. That is correct. I'm going to ride the path. So my Thanksgiving Day selections, Buffalo minus nine and a half. The Cowboys minus nine and a half. The Patriots getting two and a half, and I think they'll win it outright, which leads me to my picks of the week. I already told you that the um, – the, the game, the night game, will be in my pack. So the Patriots are one of my picks. Now, last week, I was 2-1. and one. So I had a good week last week, 22-19 and 19 on the year. I'm still ahead. The Niners covered against uh, the Cardinals. Cincinnati covered against Temple. My one loss was UCLA against USC, but uh, UCLA was right there, Chip. You let me down. Uh, anyway, this week in college, let's uh, go with uh, Texas. Why would I go with Texas? They've been up and down all year. They drop out of the top 25. Baylor looks like a good team. Uh, Texas Longhorns are hosting Baylor. The line was five and a half. It has shot up to eight and a half. Texas favored by eight and a half. That's enough for me. I'm going to take the Longhorns minus eight and a half. That line tells me something. And the sharp money is coming in on Texas early in the week to push that line to eight and a half. I will also take... What is, this may be the first time ever I've picked this college team. I'm going to take Tulane. What, Mike? Yes, Tulane is actually a contender in this American conference. They're at Cincinnati. I caught a cash last week with Cincinnati. So why is this game Cincinnati only minus two? In fact, it's gone down. Cincinnati at home was favored by three and a half. They're now down to minus two. I, listen, I don't know anything about Tulane, but this line is suggesting another outright Tulane may win this game. But I'll take them getting two points. And, of course, the pro game, I'll take the Patriots minus two and a half. Just other games you might want to look at. I'm not saying you have to play them, but look at them. Penn State, they have gone from minus seven to minus 15 in their home game against Michigan State. That's a healthy push-up. Chiefs have gone from minus 9 to minus 15 against the falling apart Rams. Two lines that have gone up considerably. One up eight points, Penn State. The other up six points, the Chiefs. Look at those games. Those lines may be speaking to you. As long as we're talking about football here on the Mike Missinelli podcast, let's talk about the Eagles a little early in the week versus the Packers Sunday night game. Now, listen, it's simple for every team that plays the Eagles. You must run the ball effectively. And uh, that actually helps Green Bay because if they run the ball successfully, that takes a little bit of the heat off Aaron Rodgers who's having a subpar year. It takes uh, the, the onus off whether he's got to be Superman and throw the ball 45 times to beat this team. Um, 
Green Bay has uh, lost six of the last seven. They're four and seven. They need to win and maybe run the table, or at least with their six games left, they need to win at least five of them to get a sniff of a wild card playoff berth. So they're in desperation. But let's look at their team. Uh, Reggie Cobb is their leading receiver. I, I mean, come on. I, listen, the guy, he's a good football player. He's 100. Uh, Christian Watson is coming on. He's the latest flavor. But, you know, I'm looking at his numbers last week, and uh, he only had four catches for like a 12-yard average. So he hasn't been a big play guy at least last week. Uh, the Eagles in this game are a seven-point favorite. Um, now, the Eagles adjusted to the run that they hadn't been stopping last week by going with a five-man front uh, in, in their game last week. And they also got fortified by the presence of Limbell Joseph and uh, the uh, Monicons, uh, uh, the Monic- what, how do you pronounce that? What? Demonicon Sue? Indomican Sue. Indomican. Indomican Sue. My bad. All right. So with Sue and Joseph in there, it fortified them a little bit. They both got a lot of snaps and they played pretty well. Now, the Packers are well rested, having not played since last Thursday. The Eagles are on a short week. Does that factor in? I, I don't know. Again, uh, Aaron Jones has to have a big game. 12 carries for 40 yards last week. Uh, A.J. Dillon, six carries for 13. That's not going to get it done. Uh, against the against the Eagles, uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, okay performance last week. He was twenty four for thirty nine for two twenty seven, but only a five point eight average per pass. He was sacked once, uh, and uh, there there might not be the dynamic plays that they they need out of Cobb and Lazard and, and Christian Watson uh, to beat the Eagles. Short week, but I think Eagles cover that seven. All right, uh, I'm not going to put it in my pack. Okay, that's your Eagles Packers review as we go into Sunday night. And again, uh, I re- recommend that you uh, stay after the game and watch the Eagles uh, post-game show on uh, 6abc.com, which includes me, Seth Joyner, Derek Gunn, Devin Caney. Uh, you can also get it on uh, Jacob Sports' YouTube channel. All right, this is a segment we call Mike Unleashed. We're going a little long on the podcast today. It's, it's just kind of a Thanksgiving Day gift for y'all. All right? So uh, here's Mike Unleashed. Now, Mike Unleashed could be anything today. I'm going to talk about uh, a tragic event, another tragic event, the shooting yesterday, this one in Chesapeake, Virginia, uh, at Walmart. Now, if you don't know where Chesapeake, it's, it's in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk, uh, Norfolk, uh, Newport News area, where Allen Iverson is from. Uh, so there was a shooting in, in a Walmart. Um, now, listen, it, it's a broken record if I have to come on every week and say we need better gun control. But we also need this. We need a reduction in publicity for these crazy man shooters. Now, I'm a man who has spent his life in journalism, and this is kind of against the grain of what journalism is supposed to be all about. But here's where I get unnerved. The people that are committing these acts are disenfranchised people who obviously need mental help. But I believe one of the main motivations for these people is that they they feel like they get some fame out of this. The more these things happen, there's another person going, well, I can get fame, even though it's infamy. All they care about, since they're kind of mentally disturbed, is the attention they're getting. Uh, they've probably been seeking attention their whole life, and, and, and now so they get it through this news coverage and headlines, and, and it gives them some kind of a sick self-worth. So I, I just believe it encourages others with this defective mindset to act. Because what we're going to see now is the news media finding out all about this shooter and, and, and detailing what he's all about. And i got to be honest with you, I don't give a fuck about this guy 
and and the more we glorify it, it's like a way of glorifying these guys, even though I know the journalists are trying to do their job by presenting the news. So uh, yeah, I go back to like uh, the principle. And of course, this is way more important and, and noteworthy than anything I'm about to say. But, you know, when someone runs on the field at a sporting event, what have the, 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 the TV networks decided to do? They've decided not to put the camera on the field to give the guy any attention. Why did they do that? To discourage other idiots from wanting to do that. Because the idiot is doing it to get attention. The idiot's doing it to get on TV because he's got some kind of lack of self-worth. So they've decided to stop the buck right there and don't show it on TV. Well, isn't this the same principle? You have to report the news. I get it. Why do we have to go into detail about who these cretins are? It only encourages others. All right, that's Mike Unleashed for today. It is now time for three questions for Mike. And Darren DeGitano has the three questions. Here we go. Three questions, Mike. Three questions for Mikey Miss. You don't know what these questions are? I haven't briefed you on these. We're going to get your off-the-cuff answer. It's Thanksgiving. I'm going to have a little Thanksgiving theme here. Okay? Mike Thanksgiving dinner. What is your favorite Thanksgiving side meal, like side portion? I'm a mashed potato man. Yeah, I, I go simple. Uh, I'm a mashed potato man. I, I don't go casseroles. I eat these green bean casserole things. I, I don't go too creamy. You know, you put the cream and mushroom soup on top of it, and you put it in the oven. It shows no innovation. I go simple mashed potato with the turkey and the gravy going over both. Can't argue with that. And that's all I, I got to be honest with you. That's all I need. You want to give me some asparagus? I'm good with that. Any kind of green that goes with it, veggie? Like a little stuffing? Oh, I, yeah, I like stuffing. But see, the problem with stuffing is if uh, an Italian Thanksgiving, if you're stuffed up with the pasta, you know, the stuffing is kind of overkill. That's why I go potatoes rather than the stuffing. But I'll throw the stuffing on there with the cranberry. And I like to mix the cranberry with the turkey. My wife's aunt makes mushrooms, too. It goes great with turkey. Uh, that's a nice item. It's a nice item. But I go mashed potatoes. I'm a mashed potato man. I like it. With the brown gravy, you got to love it. That's question number one. Question number two, Mike. Everybody loves football on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving NFL football or Christmas Day NBA basketball? You know, uh, I I, got it. Hugging at your strings there. I got to go Christmas Day NBA basketball. Oh, you're so wrong. Yeah, no, and here's why. Because all those NBA Christmas Day basketball games are are hand-picked, tremendous matchups. And the football games aren't. They're just within the schedule. So I think the better product is actually the NBA Christmas games because of the matchups that they put selectively on that TV. I can't argue with that reasoning. I'm just a traditionalist. And football Thanksgiving. Yeah, I, I know. Listen, I'm, it's not like I'm not watching the NFL. I'm, you asked me the question, what, uh, what's better? I, I like the better contest. So the better contest come on, on NBA Christmas Day. Can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. Okay, question okay. number three. Make it plain and simple. I already said to you, I think Thanksgiving is the greatest holiday of the year. What's your favorite holiday of the year? Oh, it's definitely Thanksgiving. I'm already on record saying it's Thanksgiving. Um, I think Easter and Christmas kind of tie. What do you like about Easter? You know, well, Easter, Easter, Easter's kind of the same. Christmas, Christmas, see, Christmas is different because 
uh, the Italians go with the Christmas Eve. So Christmas Day kind of becomes a nothing day. Uh, Except if your kids are young. Right. And I don't have a young child <laughs> anymore. I haven't had a young, young child in, in, in a really long time. Uh, yeah, by the way, my uh, I have to give a shout out to my uh, lovely daughter, Kira, who has uh, just announced her engagement. Congratulations, Kira. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, a little baby girl is get, getting engaged, going to be getting married next year. So congratulations to Kira. Uh, but yeah, I would go with, uh, you know, Easter's kind of rivals Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people don't celebrate Easter that aren't of the Christian persuasion, but Easter kind of has the same feel. Uh, as a Thanksgiving where people get together and, and have the meal. Um, all right. That's uh, three questions for Mikey Miss. Now I'm going to, I have already announced this on Twitter. Uh, if you have a question for Mikey Miss, I will answer uh, one of the fans questions out there. In fact, I, I just actually got a couple, uh, a guy, uh, well, I've tweeted this out and a guy uh, emailed me. And if you have a question you want to ask me, and it could be about anything, it could be about life, it could be about sports, it could be about love, life, whatever it is, uh, just ask it on my, uh, my email, which is Mike at MikeMiss.com. A guy asked me, and we'll, we'll handle this in our next show, uh, what the uh, was the, uh, my favorite concert I've ever been to? So uh, it, we'll we'll answer that question in, in the next podcast. But to, just to wrap it up right here, as you know, uh, I talked last week about me now being involved as an owner of a winery, something I've always wanted to do. And the winery is uh, Natali Vineyards, and it's out there at Cape May Courthouse, New Jersey. It's right off of Delcy Drive. In fact, the address is two twenty one North Delcy Drive. That's Route 47 for the people who know out there. And you can go to their website to find all the information, find the wines that we're selling. We're making some great wines. NataliVineyards.com. That's N-A-T-A-L-I-V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D-S.com. We're having an event there Saturday, and I'm going to be there. So if you feel like taking a day trip out there, uh, hang out and drink a glass of wine with me. Uh, from 1 to 5 uh, on the Natalie Vineyards grounds, we're going to have live music with a musician who's very popular out that way. His name is Dan Barry. We're going to have tapas. We're going to have food trucks out there and some really good wine at some really special prices in honor of uh, the Black Friday weekend. Uh, so uh, that's this Saturday from 1 to 5, uh, Saturday the 26th of, uh, of November. Yes. So, yeah, we'd we'll like, to, like to see you there. I'd love to see everybody there. And uh, you want to uh, hang out with, uh, with me? Uh, we can certainly do that. Uh, so, again, you can get me on Twitter. Check out my Twitter. It's MikeMiss25. Uh, on email, it's Mike at MikeMiss.com. And, and don't forget uh, the Bet Rivers app. I, I download it. Uh, it's a great app. And, and you got live betting. It's real easy to use. I used it a couple times last night. And also, in, in future, I, I also said this on, on Twitter. We're going to be starting a segment called Hanging Out with the Folks when we can uh, get it all together. And Hanging Out with the Folks is that we'll invite somebody uh, who's listening to the podcast and can hang out with uh, me and my dog is, who's barking at people walking by in, in my homemade studio here in my house. Uh, but hanging out with the folks is that I'll select somebody to actually join the podcast and talk some sports. Because uh, this podcast is just a reflection of what you want. The people said, you know, we, I'd love to be interactive with you here. Uh, and uh, I'd love to come on the podcast. So if you send me an email, Mike at MikeMiss.com, and uh, convince me that you would be a really good guest, we're going to make it happen for you. And, uh, you know, we'll... we'll uh, We'll pop you in on, on our, our feed here, uh, on uh, on our computer feed. 
and, and uh, we'll get you on. We'll talk some forts for a little segment. How's that sound, Darren? I like it. You got to be very selective, though. I mean, very selective. Only the chosen few. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. So that's why people got to you got to wow me when when you when you put in your application to be on uh, uh, hanging out with the folks. Uh, you got to, you know, show me something special that you're worthy to do it. Yeah. Especially because I'm going to have to vet them. So don't bring me any crazies. Uh, Listen, (laughs) I I can't tell from an email whether they're crazy or not, but sometimes crazy will be fun. You know, crazy's good sometimes. Look at Charles. All right. Uh, I want to thank, uh, Timothy Bella for coming on the show. Uh, I want to thank Happy Thanksgiving, Mike. Yeah, Happy Thanksgiving to you, Darren, and Happy Thanksgiving to everybody, you and your family out there. Be safe out there. Enjoy your family. Whether somebody's a pain in the ass or not, it, it doesn't really matter. I, I always thought about uh, Thanksgiving with uh, Justin Timberlake uh, because he went through the gamut of bringing uh, different women to Thanksgiving Day meals. I actually had a conversation with his uncle who works for the Phillies. He runs uh, the team in Lakewood. I'm not Lakewood, in, um, in Clearwater. Um, and uh, I said, what was Thanksgiving like? at Because the, they're from Tennessee. So Justin would always come and he would bring this girlfriend at the time. So, uh, you know, all the, uh, the all the women he's had in his life started with Britney Spears came to the, the to the Thanksgiving Day table. And, of course, the, later it was Jessica Biel and a, a couple others that, that were in there. So, nice, isn't it? Show with Jessica Biel at the family Thanksgiving. Big Daddy Graham and I used to talk about the array of women that Justin Timberlake has had. Like, yeah. the, like that. It's like all star after all. Like he, like he makes DiCaprio's girls, uh, you know, look terrible. Well, he he <laughs> would he would bring them all over to the th- to the Timberlake Thanksgiving uh, uh, dinner in Tennessee. <laughs> so good for him. You imagine? Uh, all right. Again, everybody have a great holiday. Um, Thanks for, for listening to the show and uh, continue to listen and spread it around to your friends. And we're having a lot of fun doing this. And uh, we'll see you in our next podcast. It'll be after the Eagles Sunday night game. We'll have a podcast for you that Monday. So stay tuned for that and have a great rest of the day. It's Mike Miss and I'm out. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Missinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.